0: No one gets to a certain age without having made a few basic decisions on how to be in the world. I decided some time ago that it's okay to be a little afraid. That might explain why, not speaking a word of Chinese and carrying with me a single-packed suitcase, I left New York to move to Beijing and collaborate with a major Chinese book publisher on a Western etiquette guide for the Chinese. It wasn't the first time that I pursued an unlikely proposition. Years ago, with no experience in either raising money or magazine publishing, and at the time eight months pregnant, I decamped New York to launch a magazine in Los Angeles, a city I hardly knew. Gertrude Stein suggested that there is no there, there to Southern California, but it was a beacon of clarity compared with the incoherence that became my experience in China. What began as a straightforward proposition to write a book turned into something else entirely when the government censor appeared on the scene. It would be an understatement to say that China stage-manages the exposure of Western ideas to its citizens. The government censor, which in Orwellian doublespeak is called the Ministry of Information, demonstrated just how thorough is its process— It withheld the publication of my book for an innocuous inclusion of the word Muslim in the chapter that instructed readers on appropriate greetings when traveling in foreign lands. A single word kept the book out of the stores, and me in China longer than expected. When finally the censor granted permission for the book to be published, no one was more surprised than I that it became a bestseller in mainland China. The circumstances and their outcome made me aware that though the Chinese wanted to learn how to do business with the West, Western values were beside the point. But there was more to it than that. Just as significant a realization at the time was that my personal values were becoming less and less relevant in my own country. Cultures adjust their societal expectations according to change. And while most Americans are not opposed to change, the British are known to be reluctant, even when they have no choice but to accept it. This is probably why that country's Ministry of Justice only recently removed the offense of being an incorrigible rogue from its statute book. Despite their class-tinged society, Britons seem to me to possess a sense of fairness and, regardless of their squeamish avoidance of the sentimental, I've always thought them congenial. Artists, chefs, writers, architects, and scientists have landed from foreign shores to make London a culturally open capital whose inhabitants can appear at the Speaker's Corner near Marble Arch to publicly address any number of issues. Mohammed, UFOs, processed food, and Jesus are only a few of the topics I've heard deliberated there, and if not fully coherent, all of those debates remain civil. I'm not as convinced as my mother that civility clears a path to morality. Indeed, I've seen a fair share of the opposite. But because the British appear to be clinging to the hallmarks of grace and dignity, despite the tendency of their newspapers to be extremely rude... I came to the conclusion that the U.K. might have another few decades of civility left. So, rather than returning to America from China, I decided to move to London for the year I planned to map morality. That decision was rendered irreversible when rules prevented me from subleasing my New York apartment longer than the year I was in China, giving me no choice but to sell the apartment. With that decision came the need for another— this one having to do with where I would live in London once I arrived. Like most international cities these days, London primarily accommodates the rich, and so I was grateful when Simon, an English friend who lives there, alerted me to an affordably priced rental flat available in his neighborhood. Because it was within walking distance of almost everything I thought might be important to me, I wired a deposit based on little more information than the apartment's floor plan the broker sent. The broker measured the flat's floor-to-ceiling windows and agreed to receive 40 meters of yellow silk mailed from a state-run mill on the outskirts of Beijing, so that during my last months living in China, draperies could be made in London while my possessions crossed the Atlantic by ship, stopping first in Amsterdam before docking in Southampton. They would be trucked to Wimpole Street in central London and uncrated in front of a large 19th-century house whose parlor floor had long ago been converted to what would be my home, seen for the first time when I arrived in front of it. The flat's enormous and purposeless dumbwaiter hinted at past glamour. High ceilings and handsome features made up for the almost impossibly narrow bathroom slivered from the flat's hallway. A sizable eat-in kitchen and a large bedroom overlooked leafy terraces in the back.